These aren't books in which the events of the past are pinned like so many butterflies to a cork. These are the books from which history is derived. There are more than 20,000 of them. Each one is 10 feet high, bound in lead, and the letters are so small that they have to be read with a magnifying glass. When people say, it is written, it is written here. There are fewer metaphors around than people think. Every month, the abbot and two senior monks go into the cave where the books are kept. It used to be the duty of the abbot alone, but two other reliable monks were included after the unfortunate case of the 59th abbot, who made a million dollars in small bets before his fellow monks caught up with him. Besides, it's dangerous to go in alone. The sheer concentratedness of history, sleeting past soundlessly out into the world, can be overwhelming. Time is a drug. Too much of it kills you. The 493rd abbot folded his wrinkled hands and addressed Lu Tse, one of his most senior monks. The clear air and untroubled life of the secret valley was such that all the monks were senior. Besides, when you work with time every day, some of it tends to rub off. The place is Omnia, said the abbot, on the Clachian coast. I remember, said Lu Tse, young fellow called Osori, wasn't there? Things must be carefully observed, said the abbot. There are pressures, free will, predestination, the power of symbols, turning point. You know all about this. Haven't been to Omnia for all. Oh, must be seven hundred years, said Lutze. Dry place. Shouldn't think there's a ton of good soil in the whole country either. Well, off you go then, said the abbot. I shall take my mountains, said Lutze. The climate will be good for them. And he also took his broom and his sleeping mat. The history monks don't go in for possessions. They find most things wear out in a century or two. It took him four years to get to Omnia. He had to watch a couple of battles and an assassination on the way, otherwise they would have just been random events. It was the year of the notional serpent, or two hundred years after the declaration of the prophet Abyss, which meant that the time of the eighth prophet was imminent. That was the reliable thing about the church of the great god Om. It had very punctual prophets. You could set your calendar by them if you had one big enough. And, as is generally the case around the time a prophet is expected, the church redoubled its efforts to be holy. This was very much like the bustle you get in any large concern when the auditors are expected, but tended towards taking people suspected of being less holy and putting them to death in a hundred ingenious ways. This is considered a reliable barometer of the state of one's piety in most of the really popular religions. There's a tendency to declare that there is more backsliding around than in the National Toboggan Championships, that heresy must be torn out root and branch, and even arm and leg and iron tongue, and that it's time to wipe the slate clean. Blood is generally considered very efficient for this purpose. And it came to pass that in that time the great god Om spake unto brother, the chosen one. Pfft! Brother paused in mid-ho and stared around the temple garden. Pardon? he said. It was a fine day early in the lesser spring. The prayer mills spun merrily in the breeze off the mountains. Bees loafed around in the bean blossoms, but buzzed fast in order to give the impression of hard work. High above, a lone eagle circled. Brother shrugged and got back to the melons. 
Yea, the great God Om spake again unto Brother, the Chosen One. Psst! Brother hesitated. Someone had definitely spoken to him from out of the air. Perhaps it was a demon. Novice master Brother Numrod was hot on the subject of demons. Impure thoughts and demons. One led to the other. Brother was uncomfortably aware that he was probably overdue a demon. The thing to do was to be resolute and repeat the nine fundamental aphorisms. Once more the great god Om spake unto Brother, the Chosen One. Are you deaf, boy? The hoe thudded onto the baking soil. Brother spun around. There were the bees, the eagle, and at the far end of the garden old brother Lutze, dreamily forking over a dung heap. The prayer mills whirled reassuringly along the walls. He made the sign with which the prophet Ishkibal had cast out spirits. Get thee behind me, demon, he muttered. I am behind you. Brother turned again slowly. The garden was still empty. He fled. Many stories start long before they begin, and Brother's story had its origin thousands of years before his birth. There are billions of gods in the world. They swarm as thick as herring row. Most of them are too small to see and never get worshipped, at least by anything bigger than bacteria, who never say their prayers and don't demand much in the way of miracles. They are the small gods, the spirits of places where two ant trails cross, the gods of microclimates down between the grass roots, and most of them stay that way. Because what they lack is belief. A handful, though, go on to greater things. Anything may trigger it. A shepherd seeking a lost lamb finds it among the briars and takes a minute or two to build a small cairn of stones in general thanks to whatever spirits might be around the place. Or a peculiarly shaped tree becomes associated with a cure for disease. Or someone carves a spiral on an isolated stone because what gods need is belief and what humans want is gods. Often it stops there, but sometimes it goes further. More rocks are added, more stones are raised, a temple is built on the site where the tree once stood. The god grows in strength, the belief of its worshippers raising it upwards like a thousand tons of rocket fuel. For a very few, the sky's the limit, and sometimes not even that. Brother Numrod was wrestling with impure thoughts in the privacy of his severe cell when he heard the fervent voice from the novitiate's dormitory. The brother boy was flat on his face in front of a statue of Om, in his manifestation as a thunderbolt, shaking and gabbling fragments of prayer. There was something creepy about that boy, Numrod thought. It was the way he looked at you when you were talking, as if he was listening. He wandered out and prodded the prone youth with the end of his cane. Get up, boy. What do you think you're doing in the dormitory in the middle of the day, hmm? Brother managed to spin round while still flat on the floor, and grasped the priest's ankles. A voice, a voice, it, it spoke to me, he wailed. Numrod breathed out. Uh, this was familiar ground. Voices were right up Numrod's cloister. He heard them all the time. Get up, boy, he said, slightly more kindly. Brother got to his feet. He was, as Numrod had complained before, too old to be a proper novice. About ten years too old. Give me a boy up to the age of seven, Numrod had always said. But Brother was going to die a novice. When they made the rules, they'd never allowed for anything like Brother. His big red honest face stared up at the novice master. 
Sit down on your bed, brother, said Numrod. Brother obeyed immediately. Brother did not know the meaning of the word disobedience. It was only one of a large number of words he didn't know the meaning of. Numrod sat down beside him. Now, brother, he said, you know what happens to people who tell falsehoods, don't you? Brother nodded, blushing. Very well, now, tell me about these voices. Brother twisted the hem of his robe in his hands. It was more like one voice, master, he said. Like one voice, said Brother Numrod. And what did this voice say, hmm? Brother hesitated. Now he came to think about it, the voice hadn't said anything very much. It had just spoken. It was in any case hard to talk to Brother Numrod, who had a nervous habit of squinting at the speaker's lips and repeating the last few words they said practically as they said them. He also touched things all the time, walls, furniture, people, as if he was afraid the universe would disappear if he didn't keep hold of it. And he had so many nervous tics that they had to cue. Brother Numrod was perfectly normal for someone who had survived in the Citadel for fifty years. Well, Brother began... Brother Numrod held up a skinny hand. Brother could see the pale blue veins in it. And I am sure you know that there are two kinds of voice that are heard by the spiritual, said the Master of Novices. One eyebrow began to twitch. Yes, Master. Brother Murdoch told us that, said Brother, meekly. Told us that? Mm, yes. Sometimes, as he in his infinite wisdom sees fit, the god speaks to a chosen one, and he becomes a great prophet, said Numrod. Now I am sure you wouldn't presume to consider yourself one of them. Mm? No, master. Master. Mm. But there are other voices, said Brother Numrod, and now his voice had a slight tremolo. Beguiling and wheedling and... Persuasive voices, yes. Voices that are always waiting to catch us off our guard. Brother relaxed. This was more familiar ground. All the novices knew about those kind of voices, except that usually they talked about fairly straightforward things like the pleasures of nighttime manipulation and the general desirability of girls, which showed that they were novices when it came to voices. Brother Numrod got the kind of voices that were, by comparison, a full oratorio. Some of the bolder novices liked to get Brother Numrod talking on the subject of voices. He was an education, they said, especially when little bits of white spit appeared at the corners of his mouth. Brother listened. Brother Numrod was the novice master, but he wasn't THE novice master. He was only master of the group that included Brother. There were others. Possibly someone in the Citadel knew how many there were. There was someone somewhere whose job it was to know everything. The Citadel occupied the whole of the heart of the city of Com, in the lands between the deserts of Clatch and the plains and jungles of Hawanderland. It extended for miles, its temples, churches, schools, dormitories, gardens and towers, growing into and around one another in a way that suggested a million termites all trying to build their mounds at the same time. When the sun rose, the reflection of the doors of the central temple blazed like fire. They were bronze and a hundred feet tall. On them, in letters of gold set in lead, were the commandments. There were five hundred and twelve so far, and doubtless the next prophet would add his share. The sun's reflected glow shone down and across the tens of thousands of the strong in faith, who laboured below for the greater glory of the great god Om. 
Probably no one did know how many of them there were. Some things have a way of going critical. Certainly there was only one Cenobiarch, the superior Yam. That was certain. And six archpriests, and thirty lesser Yams, and hundreds of bishops, deacons, subdeacons, and priests, and novices like rats in a grain store, and craftsmen, and bull breeders, and torturers, and vestigial virgins. No matter what your skills, there was a place for you in the citadel. And if your skill lay in asking the wrong kind of questions, or losing the righteous kind of wars, the place might just be the furnaces of purity, or the quisition's pits of justice. A place for everyone, and everyone in their place. The sun beat down on the temple garden. The great god Om tried to stay in the shade of a melon vine. He was probably safe here, here inside these walls and with the prayer towers all around, but you couldn't be too careful. He'd been lucky once, but it was asking too much to expect to be lucky again. The trouble with being a god is that you've got no one to pray to. He crawled forward purposefully towards the old man shoveling muck, until, after much exertion, he judged himself to be within earshot. He spake thusly, I, you. There was no answer. There was not even any suggestion that anything had been heard. Om lost his temper and turned Lu Tse into a lowly worm in the deepest cesspit of hell, and then got even more angry when the old man went on peacefully shoveling. The devils of infinity fill your living bones with sulphur, he screamed. This did not make a great deal of difference. Death, old bugger, muttered the great god Om. Or perhaps there was someone who did know all there was to be known about the citadel. There's always someone who collects knowledge, not because of a love of the stuff, but in the same way that a magpie collects glitter, or a caddis fly collects little bits of twigs and rock. And there's always someone who has to do all those things that need to be done, but which other people would rather not do, or even acknowledge existed. The third thing the people noticed about Vorbis was his height. He was well over six feet tall, but stick-thin, like a normal proportioned person modelled in clay by a child, and then rolled out. The second thing that people noticed about Vorbis was his eyes. His ancestors had come from one of the deep desert tribes that had evolved the peculiar trait of having dark eyes, not just dark of pupil, but almost black of eyeball. It made it very hard to tell where he was looking. It was as if he had sunglasses on under his skin. But the first thing they noticed...